You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about vestibular disorders. Joining me is Dr. Rob O'Reilly, an attending physician in the Division of Otolaryngology and Director of the Balance and Vestibular Program at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. O'Reilly. Of course. As a way of introduction, recent studies show that 5% of U.S. children complain of vestibular-related impairments. Yet of these, only 30% receive treatment. Vestibular disorders can have a big impact on quality of life, development, and psychological well-being. To set the stage for our discussion on vestibular disorders, Dr. O'Reilly, can you review the key anatomy of the vestibular system that I should be keeping in mind? Sure, I'm glad to, Katie. To think about it globally, I think the place to start is that to maintain our balance, we all use three separate systems. So we use our three-dimensional vision our depth perception. We use our proprioception with sensation in our feet and our joints, et cetera. And then we use the vestibular apparatus. And it's useful to think of the vestibular apparatus as our, basically our ocular gyroscope. So in broad strokes, the vestibular apparatus has two different parts. It has the otolith organs, which are the utricle and the sacral, and they're gonna sense gravity or linear acceleration. So they're basically telling your brain which direction is down at any particular time. And they're gonna sense movement in the fore and aft direction and side to side. And then the other part of the inner ear senses balance is the semicircular canals. So these are canals that are about 90 degrees apart from each other. And when there is an acceleration in the plane of the canal, the stimulation that's developed there, the output is to the ocular motor pathway. So this generates responsive eye movement. And essentially what's happening is this is, allows us to maintain our gaze stability when we're in motion. And it also generates what we call physiologic nystagmus. So if you spin anybody in a stool and you accelerate them, you'll have nystagmus with the fast phase going towards the direction of the spinning. And this is something that we can measure both clinically in the examination and also objectively. So every end organ in the vestibular apparatus we can look at, but I think it's most useful to think of the combination of vestibular, visual, and proprioception when you think about global balance. Thank you. It's such a fascinatingly complex system that seems like it should be simple, but it's nice to review all of those different parts. Now, clinically, I don't often hear kids younger than teens complain about their balance or feeling dizzy. So how might these vestibular disorders present and what clues should I be paying attention to in the history in young children? Well, Katie, you're spot on because if you look back at studies about balance problems in children, particularly younger children, uh, they largely don't complain of balance problems. And so it's really observationally what their caregivers and their parents and their clinicians are seeing is what's going to give you clues. So the first thing to think about is motor development. And really, if they're seeing any delays in terms of the motor development, In the absence of other musculoskeletal issues, you have to think about the vestibular apparatus as potentially part of that issue. So frequently in the clinic, we'll have kids come in who have 
you know, the quote clumsy child or the frequent child with frequent falls, child who can't do some of the normal activities that you would expect, like riding a bike at a particular age and things like that. So in the younger age, that group, that's kind of what we're looking for globally. And that's how they'll often come to our attention. Indeed, some of the younger kids do get vertigo and they do get nystagmus under certain conditions. And so anytime clinically we see that picture, then we're going to start to think about the vestibular system as part of the, the potential issue. But really, I think it's just being vigilant to the motor milestones, to listen carefully to the concerns of the parents around balance and locomotion. And that's what's going to prompt you to you know, perhaps do a little more detailed exam and do some objective testing. So you mentioned nystagmus and our physical exams. So when I'm concerned about a possible vestibular disorder, what are some of the physical exam findings that I should be looking out for? Well, so pure vestibulopathies in children are not particularly common, but in conditions like vestibular neuritis or labyrinthitis, which is essentially a catastrophic insult to the vestibular apparatus, what happens is at the level of the brainstem, you get an imbalance because the intact vestibular apparatus is still sending baseline neural information to the brainstem. The side that is down is going to obviously have a decreased amount of signal. And so the way that the vestibular system works is comparing both sides. So that's going to generate spontaneous nystagmus. So if you see spontaneous nystagmus, it's principally in the horizontal plane in a child who often has other like vegetative symptoms like nausea and paleness and so forth. Those are the kind of the cardinal things that you're going to see in examination. And there are some simple tests that you can do in the clinic as well to kind of tease out the location of the lesion. Now, the reality is the majority of the kids that we see who have noticeable astigmas are kids who actually have a migraine variant. And vestibular migraine and all of the protean manifestations of vestibular migraine are ones that we see routinely in the clinic or are sent by our neurology colleagues because they suspect this is a migraine variant, but they want to make sure that the location of the lesion isn't in the inner ear. So you mentioned there are some simple things that we can do in clinic to tease out the location. Can you explain that more? Yeah. So... If a child comes in with a balance concern, it's like there's going to be two general pictures. Like you, children who have acute onset of nystagmus and vomiting and so forth, they're often going to end up in the emergency room. What you're going to look at is the quality of the nystagmus. You're going to do some simple hearing screens if you can, and then you're going to do your general neurologic exam. When you are trying to assess whether a child has a more chronic vestibulopathy or weakness in the inner ear, there's a couple of things that you can do and that we do in clinic. One is what's called the head thrust maneuver. So you can have the child fixate on an object, something as simple as a sticker uh, on your forehead or on your, on your white jacket. And the idea is you have them pay attention to that visual target and you move their head off of the midline fairly rapidly in either direction. And the normal response is they're going to stay very sharply fixated on the target. If you have a peripheral vestibular lesion, when you accelerate towards the side of the lesion, the eyes are going to be drawn off the target because the vestibular ocular reflex, which is that output that I was talking about, is deficient, and they'll use a few corrective saccades to get back to the target. And that's a really simple and very sensitive test that can be used to kind of as a quick screen for at least horizontal semicircular canal function. Another simple test that you can do in the office if there's 
global balance concerns is to simply have the child attempt to stand on one leg. And really, even at the lower age range, five years of age and so forth, they should be able to do that for at least three seconds in a fairly steady fashion and up to 10 seconds in older kids without any variability in their support. And if they're not able to do that, it's usually barn door obvious that they're having trouble. And again, in the absence of, say, hypotonia or musculoskeletal issues, that should prompt you to think about, hmm, maybe there is a vestibular deficit in this child. Great. Those are some great practical tips that we can apply to patients in the office. One of the other things that we see, obviously, a lot in primary care, we did at least before the pandemic, were ear infections. And I know that this can be one of the causes of vestibular dysfunction when there's chronic otitis. So when should I be considering vestibular dysfunction in these patients? You know, Katie, that's a great question. And I would tell you that all of the answers to that question aren't still available. I'm sure you have seen children in your practice that the parents will bring them in and will tell you, you know, doctor, there's fluid in the middle ear. There's some active middle ear process because my child has been walking around like a drunken sailor for the past few days. And indeed, you often see that they can have either a sterile effusion or an otitis median. But not all kids present that way. And we think that when you have the middle ear process, that some of the inflammatory mediators from the middle ear can cross the round window membrane and cause what's called a serous labyrinthitis in the inner ear. So it would be some disruption of the normal physiologic function of the membranous labyrinth and would cause a vestibular deficit. Years ago, I did a study. Unfortunately, we didn't have enough patients to reach statistical significance, but we looked at kids a little bit older that we could do objective vestibular testing. And we tested them before ear tubes were placed. They had already qualified for the tubes for a variety of reasons. And then we tested them a month after the tubes had been placed. And indeed, we saw fairly dramatic change in their vestibular function. So I think that, at least my guess is, a lot of kids have some balance uh, impact from their middle ear process, but the reality is their dexterity is so good and their ability to compensate is so good and quick that it doesn't come to our clinical attention. Mm, interesting. Well, hopefully we see fewer ear infections as the pandemic and social distancing continue. But when people come back together, this may be something that we need to think more about again. The other thing that I remember learning a lot about in medical school was benign paroxysmal positional vertigo or BPPV. But it's my understanding that this isn't as common in children. So tell me about some of the other more common causes of vertigo that I might see in pediatrics. You're absolutely right. We don't see the degree of BPPV in the pediatric age group as we see in the adult age group. And we think that's because of what we call presby labyrinth, meaning you have some age-related degeneration and the otolith organs are affected that way. We do see BPPV, though, in certain circumstances. So post-head trauma, we can see it. We see it in kids who engage in certain activities where there's you know some degree of violent head movement, like gymnastics or even competitive swimmers, the kick turns. I think can dislodge some of the otoliths. So, and then we'll see kids who have had some other inner ear insult, like a labyrinthitis or a vestibulonaritis, and then later on, some of the otoconia can break loose, and you'll see BPPV. But if you break down at least the sample of convenience that we see in our clinic, 
at least 65 to 70% of the kids that we see is suffering from some type of a migraine variant. And our neurology colleagues have this concept of the migraine march, that the migraine process can morph into different clinical presentations depending on the age of the child and their neuromaturation. So there's some compelling evidence that perhaps even infantile colic is a migraine variant. And then in the older children, you see paroxysmal torticollis, uh, which is an affectation of the central vestibular pathways. And then between the ages of about three and a half and six, we see a condition called benign recurrent vertigo of childhood. It used to be called Basser's migraine, which is very stereotypical, short episodes of spontaneous nystagmus, perhaps a head tilt, vomiting. The kids will have normal balance in between. And then as soon as the episode passes, they're back on their way running around. And then we see vestibular migraine as a more common presentation in the kids who perhaps will have some degree of vertigo. This can be different types of sensations of vertigo, followed by uh, head discomfort. And then in the older kids, sometimes the aura, which was represented by the vestibular symptoms, becomes more of an ocular phenomenon. So there's this whole spectrum. So that's the majority of the kids we see. And then, of course, we see kids with congenital vestibulopathy. So you should know that kids with significant sensory hearing loss, at least 70% of them have some vestibular deficit, but we don't really think about the vestibular deficit because we're focused on the hearing loss. But that's a high yield group that we see. There's different types of congenital lesions that can present with vestibular disorders like inner ear malformations. Uh, one that comes to mind is uh, cytomegalovirus infections, congenital CMV, not only can affect hearing, but can profoundly affect the vestibular function. And then we see kind of a, a variety of other conditions that can affect the global balance, maybe don't directly relate to the generation of nystagmus, but can lead to, you know, delayed motor milestones and things like that. Thank you for giving us that full spectrum of presentations that you see in ENT. One of the things that I also see is what you mentioned a little bit um, post-concussion dizziness or balance impairment. So what's the natural history of those symptoms after a concussion? And when should we refer for vestibular therapy? Yeah, you know, concussion is a difficult problem because when there's a significant head injury, you can get a concussive injury to the labyrinth. And so that can lead to global disruption of the vestibular function and or, you know, loose otoconia in a BPPV picture. The problem is if you have a significant inner ear injury from the concussion, your recovery from that is predicated on your central compensation. And if you have a global brain injury, that can be delayed. So these are, these are quite challenging patients. And I would say, you know, the general time course for recovery from a concussion in terms of your balance is three to four weeks. The balance should be starting to return to some degree of normalcy. There should be more confidence and ambulation and things like that. If you're getting on two, three months and the balance is still effective, or they have symptoms of positional vertigo, like you mentioned before, the BPPV, then I think that would prompt a referral. Typically, where these referrals come to us from are the excellent concussion programs at CHOP. So if they're doing their standard therapy, perhaps even adding in some vestibular therapy, and they're not really seeing progress, they will often send those children to us to do a full vestibular battery so we can kind of assess the integrity of their peripheral system. 
Great. It's good for us to keep that timeline in mind. And yes, we love our concussion colleagues at Chopper. So lucky to have them. So another important topic is mental health. And we all know that mental health issues have risen during the pandemic. So let's talk about the overlap between vestibular disorders and mental health. It seems to me that there's a bi-directional relationship here. For example, in some cases, vestibular disorders may create anxiety, and in other cases, anxiety may produce vestibular symptoms. So tell us about how you manage this in your practice. Yes, yeah, so the key really is the history and kind of digging down into the underlying symptoms. So let's start with the first premise. So if you have a peripheral vestibulopathy, whether you have an acute insult or you have a relapsing vestibulopathy like endolymphatic high drops, you know, what we call Meniere's disease, things like that. The reality is if, it, if those symptoms don't make you anxious on some level, there's probably something wrong with you because that's a very out of control, frightening feeling for any patient of any age to have those. So we do, we do see patients that have these types of conditions and anxiety and the anxiety about the prospect of another attack is part of the kind of global complex of symptoms that we have to address. The flip side of that coin is anxiety and depression, as you rightly point out, in this COVID era has become somewhat of an epidemic as far as I can tell. And we have had a regular flow, particularly of teenagers come in who have some complaint referable to dizziness or, or lightheadedness or things like that, who it's really a manifestation of their isolation, their underlying anxiety, which has been magnified by the current situation. So basically being a good listener, being multidisciplinary in our approach. So we have several different groups of practitioners seeing the patients during the vestibular visit. And often over the course of that half day of evaluation, when we compare the stories, we can come to some conclusion whether this is the chicken or the egg kind of phenomenon. And then we can get our mental health experts involved, depending on the final recommendations from the team. The other group of patients that I see that dizziness can be, I don't want to say a somatization of their symptoms, but it can be tied into their psychosocial situation is occasionally I'll see fairly high-end athletes or athletes whose families are very much invested in their success in their athletics. I'll take a skater, for example. So we'll see skaters, either their body habits has changed in the teenage years, or quite frankly, they're not interested in the sport anymore. And they will often come in with dizziness that's disabling enough that they're not able to participate in that athletic activity anymore. That can be a very tricky visit because you have to be able to look at the timeline of their symptoms. You have to look at the objective data. This is where the objective vestibular testing is very helpful to be able to definitively rule out an inner ear disorder. And then you have to have the conversation with the family about this and try and get down to the root of the problem. When we do our physical therapy evaluation, part of that process is to do a test called posturography, which is a way of looking at those three different inputs that I talked about, the vision, the proprioceptive, and the vestibular. And there are certain patterns that we can see that are not what we would call physiologic patterns. So those are patterns that would indicate that there is some other issue and perhaps one that's involved around anxiety about the activity or things like that. It's very interesting to hear how you tease that apart. And we appreciate that you 
highlight the importance of a good history because it's something that I think is a theme that comes up with all the specialists that I talk to. It's so important. So in general, when should we refer patients from primary care who have vestibular concerns to an ENT like you? Yeah, that's a that's a wonderful question. I think the first thing I would say is, as a primary care, if you have concerns, because you know you're going to be very obviously conversant with that with that child and with that family, and over time, you're finding that they're not meeting the, the motor milestones that you would expect, and that would be a child that, in the absence of other neurologic issues and so forth, that would be appropriate to refer. Uh, kind of an easy rule of thumb from that end is. If a baby can't sit up by seven months of age, or if they're not starting to attempt to walk by 14 months of age, those are ones that there's a higher yield of finding a vestibular deficit. So those would be two specific scenarios to think about. The other would be if the child has significant sensory neural hearing loss, meaning a pure tone average of 60 to 65 decibels or worse, they have a very high likelihood of having a vestibular deficit. And those would be important to assess, even if there aren't really obvious signs of a balanced problem, because we can often help them. And of course, as you know, as a, as a primary care physician, any concern on the parental side for gross motor development or balance needs to be taken uh, seriously. And is certainly that would be a patient that we would be happy to evaluate. So speaking of referrals, as I mentioned in the beginning, you are the director of the Balance and Vestibular Program at CHOP, and you're an ENT surgeon, but who are the other team members in your program, and what can our patients expect when we refer them there? Yeah, we have really, I'm very proud of our team at CHOP. We have some wonderful clinicians that we've put together, and this is really a very, very multidisciplinary program. So the key players I evaluate patients from an ENT perspective, and so does my colleague, Brian Dunham. Aaron Field is our physician assistant who directs the program. And Erin is really generally the first point of contact. She's the one who coordinates the visit, sets expectations of the family, gets outside records, talks to other clinicians, and makes arrangements for the visit. Because the visit generally is a half-day visit to see all, all the folks involved. And so People are coming from different parts of the country, so she kind of teased that up. We also have Betsy Kim, Deshaun Turner, and Kathy Wielcho, who are part of the team, so they help as well. Our audiology team is key. We have Melissa Kane, who's the lead on that, and then we have Lindsay Spencer and Ariel Darwin. And those, they're pediatric audiologists who specifically have skills in the vestibular testing, which you can imagine can be quite a trick in the younger kids. So general strokes, we'll, we're willing to see anybody to get Objective vestibular testing, generally about three years of age or older, is optimum. And then to get all the information, generally by the time the children are five, we can do everything. And then we have our physical therapy department, which is very key because, quite honestly, often the intervention is going to involve some type of vestibular and physical therapy. So Megan Beam and Michael Carl are our two leads on that. And then we have Chrissy Taylor and Karen Dillon, our other PTs. So we have a specialty group there that we meet at the end of the day after we've seen the patient and we can get a disposition to the family quite rapidly. And of course, because we see so many patients with migraine variants, we work very closely with our fantastic headache group at CHOP. And so we're in communication with them often and we will be referring back and forth depending on the findings that we have. 
That's fantastic. So much great interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary teamwork. And we are so lucky to have you helping our patients at CHOP. And for those who are far away from CHOP who are listening to this podcast, I know that you've taught us all a lot about vestibular disorders today. And there's so much more that we can learn. I know there's more information on the CHOP website, which we will link to. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much, Katie. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.